Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is my lone co-host this week, Sam. I'm so alone. So alone. Forlorn. But don't worry, we decided that since it was just the two of us this week, we were going to do a handful of films as opposed to one each. This week, we are talking about childhood favorites. Sam, do you want to tell our listeners how we came to this particular topic? Story time! You mean the fact that you spent years trying to get me to watch these movies? This was all a dastardly plan. I feel like every month, at least one of the episodes is there for that. I mean, you're on a roll. You've got me to watch Selfie. Over this summer, uh, the movies we're about to talk about, and we're also a preview of next week's James Vanderbeek Spectacular. You've had me watching Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23, so like you're on a roll of getting me to watch things. I'm doing real good. I also am getting you to watch one of your Spooktober choices. This week, we find out why Sam is so obsessed with going to California, and I swash a buckle. How do you swash a buckle? You know, I don't know. I always assumed it was like a belt buckle and swashing it was like cleaning it. Is this like hoisting somebody on a petard? Yeah, I've always grouped those two phrases in the same general area. Okay. All right. Got it. So we're talking about those films that the two of us saw, what, like dozens of times in our childhood? You know, those films that you have that like nostalgia packed attraction to that you want to show everybody or perhaps you're afraid to show other people. Sam, what qualifies as a childhood favorite? They don't have to be things explicitly for children, but it helps. Right. I'd say if it's something that's a favorite of yours by the time you've reached 10, it's probably a childhood favorite. After that, it's just a favorite. I don't know. (laughs) Do you think the childhood favorite has to do with the amount of times you've watched it or your access to it? Well, that's a tricky question because if you're talking to me about this, my family, as you know, were early adopters, but a lot of folks didn't have access to VCRs when I was younger. Access does make a difference. And I guess it has something to do with it, but I think that's different. I think access means something different than it does for for you and, and for me. Because I remember seeing Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom for the first time in the theater. I was probably over the age of five when I saw it, so I didn't see it on its original release. Seeing that movie in the theater is is, is a very traumatizing memory for me. I mean, so, the first time I saw it wasn't in a theater, and I remember being traumatized. Well, right. So, but if you think about it, you know, okay, sure, we may have had them on tape at some point, but for a lot of people, you know, seeing a movie that I was too young to see in the theaters for the first time in the 80s might also still be seen in the theater when they, you know, did like their little summer programs or things like that. Whereas, as you say, for you, it was totally easy. 
to actually have access to them. Whether you could watch them or not in your house is a different story. I think that childhood favorites have a lot to do with your parents as well, because they're usually films that your parents introduce you to or think like, oh, my kid will like this film or something like that. Like usually they're not things unless you were incredibly sneaky before the age of 10. They're usually not things that your parents disapprove of. This is, you know, I hate to do this to you. Oh, God. But you seem to have forgotten the Generation X narrative. We really did find things out in the woods, like tetanus-ridden VHSs that nobody ever... (laughs) Tetanus-ridden? How old are you? The point is, no, that's not true. When I was a child, I could catch diphtheria from a VHS. I don't know what voice I'm doing right now. I, I don't know why you thought we'd catch diphtheria from a VHS. I mean, maybe maybe if it's the Ring VHS, I don't know. The point is... No, you catch something else from that. Uh, you know, they might have died of diphtheria. You don't know. <laughs> it's your vaccination, the kids. Thing. The point is, again, that is not necessarily true for generations past, especially the generation that is known, if nothing else, than for just finding things out. There was some, you know, I have this list here, favorite childhood films. Some of them definitely did come from a parent. That's for sure. But most of them didn't. Now, I will say in my family, I, for the most part, until I got really into Madonna, which was right around the Blonde Ambition Tour, that was the first one that I was told no to. I discovered <laughs> discovered Madonna on my own, decided I really liked her, wanted to see the HBO Blonde Ambition special, and my parents said no. The second one was right after that, and I've mentioned this several times, was Terminator 2. I could not go see that movie in the theater. I could not go with friends who were going with parents to see it in the theater. But again, for the most part, my childhood favorites are things that I found out about on my own and was able to get access through my parents. So it's kind of a it's kind of a median between tetanus VHSs and <laughs> and your story. At a rental store, right? I mean, like I'm Yes, you could get tetanus at a rental <laughs> store for I, sure. I believe that about some for rental sure. stores. No, I mean, like, I'm not a young millennial. I'm not an elder millennial either. I sit somewhere in the middle. And we didn't have streaming when I was a child. I mean, streaming didn't really become popular until I was in my teens. So I very much remember VHSs and rental stores and Be Kind Rewind. But the difference here is that you were heavily controlled. Yes, that is the difference. Going off what you said, the first film that I remember my parents telling me I couldn't watch, I was five years old and I went over to a friend's house and we started watching the Michael Keaton Batman and apparently my mom like found out about it and like yanked me out of there oh the Michael Keaton Batman that's another one so same friend that we we discovered Madonna together also really loved the Michael Keaton Batman movie as you know so he bought the soundtrack which as you know is Prince. Right. And thanks, Tipper had a sticker on it. And his mom managed to hear it and was like, no, no, we're not doing that. So she let him make a uh, make a dub of the songs that didn't have objectionable stuff on it. 
So less than half. And the re- and and then it had to be returned to the store. So I also was yeah, you, Batman censored. Batman censored. Although, as you know, that that's really ironic considering you know my mom bought me the Killing Joke. Yeah. Well, you were Batman censored by someone else's mom. Yeah, but my mom talked it over with her mom. Ah, I see. That was the first of two incidents in my life where a, another mom talked something over with my mom, and then they were convinced it was bad. Yeah, that happened you to my shouldn't parents let too. Moms talk. No, it's never good. Never let moms talk. No. For me, I feel like there are a handful of films, and you know, like I, I definitely remember seeing films that I was way too young for because my parents, like, showed me them and didn't realize I was going to be scared. Like Willy Wonka and the Char- Chocolate Factory. That's on them. Willow, which has a really scary scene of a baby in danger at the beginning of it, and that's, I saw that when I was three. That's on you. <laughs> I was very much against kids being in peril in in films. And yet somehow you love Labyrinth. Yeah, but Labyrinth is definitely a child fave. What can I say? I mean, I think I watched it when I was like five or six for the first time. So I was a little older than when I first saw those two films. I want to hear more, though, about like what are some of the, the movies on your list for a childhood favorite that didn't make the cut for this episode? First of all, Star Wars does not count for either of us because I think it was a favorite for both of us. Oh, it's on the list. I mean, you can tell me it doesn't count, but it's on the list. Uh, I'll start with Labyrinth because it is definitely on the list. And it came out in 86, so I might have been six the first time I saw it, too. But I didn't see it earlier only because it didn't exist. Also, I will point out two other childhood favorites. Again, Willow. Classic. The Dark Crystal. Classic. And The Muppets Take Manhattan. And I got to tell you, I mean, in case you haven't figured it out, I'm definitely in the tank for Lucasfilm and the Muppets. I mean, they were making solid content. And uh, let's see, they he also did uh, that, that series, The Storyteller, later on. I think. Oh, I love that, that series. 90s? I love that series. That series is so messed up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I watched them all on TV when they first aired. So, you know, things like that I really liked. You know, I've told you before about my experience watching the Star Wars trilogy on VHS recorded off of HBO. They did not, I didn't know these terms until much later, but The Empire Strikes Back was not pan and scanned. It was just smushed. So Ghost Obi-Wan Kenobi was super tall. <laughs> kind of like Tall Walt. Anyway. Taller uh, Ghost Walt. Yes. Uh, the two movies we're going to talk about today for sure. And also a movie, another movie that I saw over and over and over again, A Short Circuit. So that first episode of Master of None, I'm like, I didn't. Oh, oh, I didn't know. Anyway, as you mentioned, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, but I will do you one better. The super traumatizing film that's on my list is Return to Oz, which I saw as a child more than I watched the original. Wow. You really need to see that. I mean, and the original is kind of traumatizing, too. I mean, who didn't have Does nightmares? Does it involve shock treatment? No, it involves nightmarish flying monkeys. I had to hide under a blanket hey, during those scenes. Hey, guys, if you think Tessa should watch Return to Oz this year, please let I'm us going know. to watch Return to Oz this year. Yeah. I only watched Muppets Take Manhattan for the first time this year. Right. Although Muppet Treasure Island was a childhood favorite. Yeah. Apparently, Tim Curry was okay. The other things on my list are The NeverEnding Story. Talk about traumatizing. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about 
my particular part of my generation's childhood films. They were all super traumatizing. <laughs> all of them. All of them. I also really loved, I was going to say Michael Jackson's Moonwalker, but that's not it. I actually loved Michael Jackson's Captain EO, but you could only see that when you went to Disney. But as you know, the thing that I watched most as a child was Olivia Newton-John's physical visual album and the live concert that came out around the same time. It shot over two nights in Salt Lake City, of all places. It was years before I saw Grease, but I knew the songs. Two more, by the way, two cartoons that I used to watch all the time. Dot and the Kangaroo, which is set in Australia. So there's that. And then there's a cartoon version of Puff the Magic Dragon. That's a lot of childhood favorites. Yeah. I do not have that many. Well, and and I guess I should say the Kevin Sullivan, Anna Green Gables, Anna of Avonlea, which you also haven't seen. I have not seen that either. Oh, carrots. I didn't know anything about Anna of Green Gables till I was like 10 or 11, I want to say. Look, my mom had me reading Elsie Dinsmore, which I hated even when I was a child. I don't know what that is. You don't know what Elsie Dinsmore is? Okay, people... Girls. Is this, is this a Veggie Tales thing? <laughs> no. Although Veggie Tales was a childhood fixture in my household. And by saying that, everyone who knows what Veggie Tales is knows exactly what kind of childhood I had. Yes, I did watch a lot of Veggie Tales when I was a kid. I also watched a lot of Disney, a lot of animated Disney, which is, I think, where I get my love of animated films in general. The ones that I remember specifically watching over and over again were Sleeping Beauty, Mulan. Beauty and the Beast, and The Lion King, mainly because I think The Lion King and Mulan came out when I was a child. Like, I remember them coming out and then, like, watching them every day for months because we had a VHS copy of them. So that was, like, a big deal were the Disney movies. Oliver and Company. I watched that a lot when I was a kid, too. Saw that in the theater. Yeah, that was fun. I feel like I watched more TV, actually. As I was trying to put together this list, I was like, there's a lot of Star Trek in here. Like, I think Wrath of Khan was one that I watched a lot when I was a kid. But again, that's probably because my parents were watching it and I was just there. But we watched a lot of Star Trek in general. The Goonies was something that I remember watching a lot as a child. Dragonheart, which was a film that came out with Sean Connery voicing a dragon. (laughs) Dennis Quaid and David Thewellis, which has inspired a lifelong obsession with David Thewellis. It was not a good movie. I'm just saying it was a childhood favorite. I enjoyed it. Muppets Treasure Island. Definitely watched that. I watched Swiss Family Robinson, the old Disney version of it, live action Disney version of it. I remember that one. Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella, the 90s one with Brandy and, and Whitney Houston. Labyrinth, like you said, That was a huge deal. Dark Crystal, that was a huge deal. Like anything involving puppets or Muppets, I was really into. I watched The Wizard of Oz a lot. I watched a lot of musicals like Sound of Music and The Music Man, lots of Star Wars. You had lots of Star Wars when you were a I kid. Did. We had three. Well, no, no. And when we I, had the no, weird Ewoks no, movies. No, we're talking about movies that came out before I turned 10. 2001 is when I turned 11. So I only had the three for most of my childhood. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm sure I'll think of more later. But the main thing was is that my parents were very conservative, and so they didn't let me watch a lot of movies that a lot of other kids were watching. And so I ended up watching a lot of 
older films when I was a child, including the trilogy of films that we're going to talk about today. So that was like a really big deal in my house was I had already watched by the time I got into my teens, a lot of older black and white films. Sergeant York was like a big thing in my house, which has a weird connection to the films I'm going to talk about today. Yeah. So that that's kind of the my childhood favorite list in a rambling way. But let's talk about the film that we watched together that I saw for the first time. That's one of your childhood favorites, The Flight of the Navigator. Sam, do you want to introduce this film? Hi, if you grew up in the 80s, you don't need to listen to this part because you've seen it. So. <laughs> I did not grow up in the 80s. I yeah. had no idea what this film was going in. Flight of the Navigator is kind of a Disney movie, sort of. It was, then it wasn't, then it was. But it's a movie about a kid who goes missing between 78 and 86, reappears, no time has passed for him, Time has passed for everybody else. They're freaked out. He gets experimented on, tested, but it turns out he has been abducted by aliens and through various plot contrivances that really didn't matter to me as a kid. I only kind of realized what was happening when we watched it together the other day. He reunites with a living sentient ship that is representative of or is the ship that took him away the first time. I don't know. It's very Anne McCaffrey. Right. And they have adventures. It's all about the friends they make along the way. Very Muppety looking friends, to be honest with Mm, you. Yes. I'm seeing a theme here. Why did you want me to watch this one? Like why out of all your childhood favorites did you pick this one? If you'll remember, and we were talking about this on the podcast last time, I believe, When you woke up remembering. Yeah, for those of you who may not have heard the podcast last time, I knew that it was just going to be Sam and I during this episode, and it took me weeks to come up with this topic. What ended up happening was I woke up in the middle of the night and told Sam childhood favorites and then went back to sleep. Right, and and this is the movie that I came up with. Immediately. You said immediately. immediately. Yes, I... How many times do you think you've seen this film? A lot. (laughs) If you had to estimate a lot of times, many lots, Uh, many lots. Interestingly, this film stars a child actor named David Freeman, who I know from nothing else other than this role. But apparently Joaquin Phoenix and Chris O'Donnell were both considered for this. So the Joker and Robin. Makes sense to me. Yes. I was also, I also remembered this is, this is great, by the way. I realized I had forgotten that Sarah Jessica Parker was in this movie. Yeah, she is. Yes, and Sarah Jessica Parker is not somebody I care for, except for like a two-year period. She's so cute. She's so baby. Yes. Just like in Footloose. I don't know what happened. I don't know. But, But at some point, I switched from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kim Cattrall. When I saw Mannequin for the first time. Ooh, so. so you have a definite side in the Sex and the City Wars. I don't suppose you recognized the voice of Max, the the ship, did you? I did not. That is Paul Rubens, one Pee Wee Herman. Oh, okay. Yeah. Another another thing I watched a lot as a child. That's how I know Lawrence Fishburne. Anyway, what'd you think about this movie? I really 
liked it. First of all, this movie and the other one that you had me watch, which we'll talk about near near the end of the episode, it reminded me of the way that movies used to have really long opening credit sequences and there was always a really good song in the background and there's like you know all of these different shots of something happening so in this particular film it's they're at like a dog frisbee contest where the dogs are like chasing frisbees and so you just get all these really cool shots of like dogs either catching or biffing the frisbees what does this have to do with the movie Nothing. Well, there's a he has a dog. Sure. That's that's tangentially what's happening. This always interests you. You're like, oh look a dog. If you're gonna have dog content in a film, I'm always gonna want more dog content. That's fair. I wish movies did this more. I said this after this movie and after I watched the opening credits of the other movie that you picked, because it's just this really nice like setting the table for the rest of the movie. Like you get the part of the soundtrack, you get some visuals that kind of clue you in maybe on like what some of the themes are or what kind of the, the vibe is for the film. And I just feel like movies now, I don't know if I've seen a movie in the last few years that do this. I mean, if dear listeners, you know of some, I would love to to hear about it because off the top of my head, I couldn't think of any, but it's just a really nice stylistic thing that happened a lot in the 80s and 90s, and I, I kind of want it back. That's not the only reason I like this film. <laughs> sure. It, it was the dog. It was the only thing. It was the dog. Um, there are a lot of things that are very comforting to me in this in this movie. Alan Silvestri does the score. That's yeah. somebody we're definitely very familiar with in the 80s. The other thing that I had forgotten is that uh, one of the lead scientists is played by Howard Hessman, who was, if I were older, I would recognize him from that other sitcom, but he was the teacher in Head of the Class, which was another show I watched. You didn't have any of these childhood nostalgia cultural touchstones because you're too young for them and you didn't see them as a child. Literally, the only names I recognized were Sarah Jessica Parker and Alan Silvestri. <laughs> what else about the movie appealed to you? I actually really love the structure of this film. I did not know that it was about aliens, but they signaled pretty early on that that's what it's going to be about because they keep giving you little fake out UFO moments where you're like, that looks like a UFO, but then it turns out to be like a Frisbee or a water tower or you know something else. And I thought that that was really clever, but at the same time, you experience the time loss at the same time as David. So like you see him fall into this ditch and then you see him get back up and he goes home. Another family's living in his house, which by the way, if I was a kid and I had seen this, I had real fears about my family being replaced. Like that is a childhood like nightmare of mine. Like, you know, your parents aren't your parents anymore. Like Coraline, your parents, but not really. So he goes back and he sees that his his family doesn't live there anymore and he gets, you know, the cops talk to him and they can't figure out why he hasn't aged and then he sees his family and his younger brother who is really a jerk at the end of beginning of the movie We've is all now been there. He's now older than him and so like there's all these really interesting things because you don't know any more than he does or any more than anyone else does why he has this gap in time. It feels very Stephen King to me. But, like, not in a threatening way, not in a scary way, just in a, like, 
this is so weird. I mean, I guess maybe more X-Files than Stephen King. Well, this is also in the vein of a movie that came out a few years before this one, E.T., where like it's no big deal for the FBI to be chasing kids around with guns. They're oh not my gonna, god! They're not going to use them, and you know that. Like you know because of the tone of the movie, they're not going to shoot the kids. Just like you know in this movie, they are not going to alien autopsy a child. Right. Right. You you know this, but it's that same sense of childlike peril, <laughs> like yeah. the Goonies, right? Like they're gonna be okay, right? Like yeah. short round is gonna gonna like you, the boxing glove out of the you know the the invention, and they're gonna get away, and it's gonna be fine. Don't worry about it, right? Yeah, like there isn't really a sense that like things will be unresolved in this film, or that because that's what children's films do, right? Everything has to be resolved at the end because status quo is comforting for children, right? There's actually it's funny that you mentioned Stephen King because the big point of comparison here you take movies like et or the goonies or flight of the navigator those are movies that are made for for younger children whereas older children and teenagers are definitely going to be more interested in a movie like stand by me which came out in the 80s and is based on a stephen king story right that movie doesn't have that same sense of safety to it I mean, children are all about safety, despite the fact that we've just talked about how messed up a lot of childhood films are. There's still this need for children to understand that no matter how dangerous things get, that things will be normal by the end and that they themselves are safe. This is why Alice returns from Wonderland or Wendy returns from Neverland. Or Dorothy returns from Oz, which, by the way, is why Return to Oz is so wrong. Because... It violates the prime directive. It says, what if she wasn't safe when she got home? They threw her in a damn loony bin and hooked her up to old Sparky. And then you can walk that back with something like Willy Wonka, which is scary. But if you are a good child, you have nothing to worry about. Yeah, I mean, and you get morals of the story too, right? Like, I mean, that's true of every fairy tale. If you're the good child you'll make it. If you're a bad child, you'll get your toes cut off or eaten by a bear or right. whatever. Right. And and the thing about this movie, for me, and, and it, it cannot be this for you or anybody who sees it as an adult for the first time, is, as we're saying, because it's not supposed to be scary, it goes the other direction. It's wish fulfillment. And that seems kind of weird talking about a movie where you're abducted by aliens and come back and everything's weird. But I think that the wish fulfillment is balanced by a real sense of loss. Like, it's not terrifying loss. It's not threatening loss. And it does get resolved. But you do get this sense that David is a child out of time. And it really, really bothers him that he has lost so much time with his family. And like the fact that he needs to renegotiate his relationship with his brother, who has become a much more empathetic and mature person since the last time that he saw him. The fact that he has to deal with his parents being older and, you know, that they have gone through this trauma of losing their child and thinking he was dead. You know, like there is this sense that there is wish fulfillment, but there are real emotional stakes to what's going on. I also love that David doesn't trust the FBI. Who would? Like, they're very reluctant to let him talk to the FBI agents. He's very much like, I have to be able to call my parents. You know, and it's become very clear that the FBI 
does on some level want to manipulate him. It's funny we're talking about it like it's the FBI. I think it's NASA most, if not all Oh, no, of the it time. is NASA because he gets the yeah. snazzy hat. Yeah. yeah, it's like a collector's item. Yeah, it's apparently NASA has some sort of law enforcement arm, which doesn't entirely make sense. So I'm sure it was the FBI too. Space Force. Oh, please don't. Please don't. <laughs> Watching it again, it's clearly we are branding for NASA, which needed some good publicity at this point in its tenure. On the wish fulfillment side, we get like the cool robot, right? That like goes around and like takes lunch to people, I guess, and is allowed into restricted areas <laughs> conveniently. There's there's a lot about this movie that doesn't make any sense. There are a lot of plot holes. But it doesn't matter. And, yeah. Well, it's like Sarah Jessica Parker's character. Like, I don't know why she's there. Right. They just I mean, wanted. I, do, I do know why she's there, <laughs> but she doesn't play a role in the plot. At all. But I really enjoyed this because even after like the reveal happens that he's been with this alien, his relationship with, you know, the ship and being able to go all these different places and like figuring out, like piecing together what happened. But the ship is also learning from him like that. That all I think even though even though you could say it kind of lags a little bit and it kind of gets more into that wish fulfillment territory, it's still interesting. Yeah, it, yeah, the movie does start to drag a little bit when we get to the friends we've made along the way section. Right. But I got to tell you, to a kid, the UFO pranks are the best part of the movie. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I could definitely see as a child loving the humor of this film. I will say one of the funny sequences involves them parking and asking for directions at a gas station. I won't say exactly what yeah. happens, but it is very funny. Yeah, one thing I definitely did not know about this movie until we were going to talk about it for the episode is this is one of the first major uses of CGI. I did not know that. I didn't either. I mean, like it's good CGI for for when yeah. it when it was made. Like I was impressed. What about this movie appealed to you as a child? That idea of being taken out of your normal life and getting to do something cool. I mean, yeah, I guess that's why a lot of children like adventure stories. Yep. It's really the same thing. I mean, we're not swashing buckles or anything. But, <laughs> or going to Narnia. Well, no. But it's a really cool ship and it goes fast. And it goes fast. That's right. I like his little alien friend that he and, makes. And the, and the really attractive girl with the pink hair was yeah. paying attention to me. Right. I mean. Yeah, I get it. So, Did you know who Twisted Sister was? No. <laughs> the first time I ever heard of Twisted Sister was from this movie. And when I actually heard Twisted Sister, I was like, oh, yeah, from the movie. From the movie. Since it's your monkey, after all, would you recommend people who haven't seen it before watching it or for people who have children of their own showing it to their children? Yes. On both counts, I think. I don't think there's anything particularly objectionable in this film that I would be like... I, I mean, you always worry when you watch childhood favorites that there's going to be something in them that you just didn't recognize at the time or that was culturally acceptable at the time. I don't remember when we watched this seeing anything like that. This seemed like a pretty harmless film in that way. I mean, it doesn't even really endorse the U.S military industrial complex which is what a lot of films did they know what they did right and so you know i enjoyed watching this movie if you want some like 80s nostalgia i feel like this is a really good movie to watch like if you are looking for like this particular kind of film that we have described this is going to do that for you 
So I think that you could actually sit down and watch this with your kids. I think they'd have a fun time. But speaking of nostalgia, one of the things that qualifies a childhood favorite, I think, is this idea of nostalgia. Sam, nostalgia is kind of your thing in your scholarly work. Tell us about nostalgia and its dangers when it comes to childhood favorites. Nostalgia is where we get the good old days from. As Billy Joel said, the good old days were not that good. Tomorrow's not as bad as it seems. Easy for him to say the world wasn't on fire. But the thing about the good old days is they never existed. You're always looking back on a time that was not the way you remember it. If you've chosen to be nostalgic about something, you've only chosen to remember the good things. Or how you felt right. during that moment. Right. So, I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan was president when I saw Flight of the Navigator. You know, the other thing that you run the risk of doing is taking a story or a time period or a history and making it safe. Kind of like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. That thing is missing a lot of key details from the original story that are truly terrifying, but they made it safe, right? That's an example of something that we do. Or as safe as they could. Right. Flight of the Navigator is, is kind of a outlier in what you were saying earlier, that you know, if you tend to remember all the good things about something, you will forget some of the unfortunate things. The other movie that we're going to talk about from me today has some unfortunate things about it, You know, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, my favorite movie, uses one of the F words. When we watched it, when uh, Bill and Ted 3 came out, I was like, I think it actually holds up except for that one thing. That's not a hot take. Like most people say. No, it's a super clean, wholesome movie that really holds up and I think has aged very, very well. Back to the Future has definitely been reappraised many, many times in recent years. That was another one of my childhood favorites. I remember waiting and waiting and waiting for two and three to come out. You know, the thing about Marty and his mom, the thing about Mayor Wilson, all these things have been reevaluated. So we look back on that movie as a great movie, and maybe it is, but it's not without its faults. That's the big thing with nostalgia, right? We look back and we go, "Eh, maybe we shouldn't have romanticized or talked about it this thing, this way. Well, and I also wanted to bring this up, especially because that time of your childhood happened in the 80s. And that's not a decade that I was alive for. But I think that in current pop culture, there is a lot of general nostalgia for the 80s. We can see that in Stranger Things, Paper Girls, remakes of Stephen King, you know, like all of these different pieces of pop culture that are really trying to go back and capture that nostalgia for that particular time period Do you think that nostalgia is dangerous to creating new art? It can be. Nostalgia is easy to trade in. You talk about franchises that reboot, whether that's a movie or a TV. It's really easy to say, you remember you liked this before, so you'll like it if we give it to you 17 more times. And that usually doesn't work out. So there's always that danger. Nostalgia is comforting. Whenever we're stressed out, or we want a safe place, a lot of us will retreat to something that makes us feel good. And a lot of times that feel good is from nostalgia. Um, It's something we watched before. We had really good feelings about it. We want to revisit those feelings. Which is really interesting. I, I think that that's such a 
it's a very common thing to do and it can be healthy. That doesn't actually work for me. Right. Right. Because my reaction. Opposite of nostalgia. Right. And we're we're going to talk about that in a few weeks because Andy came up with an idea for an episode where I'm going to get to talk about this a little bit. But the worst thing I can do when I feel bad is try to take solace in something because then that something will be associated with the bad thing I'm going through and then I can't watch or listen to it ever again, or at least for many years. Right. And so like for me, though, that's different. Like I am the kind of person that will put on Grey's Anatomy when I'm stressed out because I know that I'll feel good watching it. That's not to say that Grey's Anatomy is a perfect television show, although some might argue that it is. There have never been any problems with anything that's ever happened on Grey's Anatomy. Nothing. Or maybe a better example would be How I Met Your Mother, which is my comfort sitcom. There is lots of stuff about How I Met Your Mother that's outdated, but... I can still take comfort from the nostalgic feelings that it gets while recognizing the problematic parts. The problem is, is that children aren't able to do that. They can't differentiate between nostalgia and problematic things. So there are definitely things from my childhood that I would show to children, but definitely some that I would not until they were older. Speaking of nostalgia, we're going to go way back. Way back. So so we talk often about how Tessa is actually suffering from Benjamin Button's disease. Vampiric and Benjamin yes, Button disease. And this is proof of that. In the first segment, I talked about how my parents showed me a lot of old films when I was a child. A lot of black and white films, which I think was actually a good thing because it really broadened my palette for films in a lot of ways. Like I was really willing to watch a lot of older films because I was so used to watching them. I think it's really interesting that that your dad likes black and white movies. My dad hates them. I know. Well, some people do, but I I always watch them with my family. And one of the 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 very loose trilogies, I'm going to call it, that we used to watch were Errol Flynn movies. And specifically, the three films that we're going to talk about, films that star Errol Flynn that were directed by Michael Curtiz. Um, all three of them were produced by Warner Bros. All three of them feature music by Eric Wolfgang Kornhold. I didn't know that before <laughs> I did the, the notes for this. So... What? Is that where you try to overcome your last name by naming a kid something really cool? <laughs> Cornhold. <laughs> Is that a last name or a backyard game? Oh, my God. These movies are not plot-wise or character-wise related in any way except for the ways I just told you. But I still think of them as a trilogy because of the way that they were made and because a lot of the key players are basically the same. So Michael Curtis, you will, of course, know from Casablanca fame. I'm pretty sure that is his most famous movie. The person who made Casablanca is the same person who made all of these Errol Flynn swashbuckling movies in the 30s and 40s. Same person. I didn't know anything about studios and how they worked, obviously, when I was a child. So like I could one of my things that allowed me to understand the studio process later when I was learning more about filmmaking and the history of filmmaking were these movies because this particular collection of movies are made by the same people. They feature a lot of character actors like Alan Hale, Una O'Connor, Montague Love. They feature, a lot of them have Basil Rathbone in them, Olivia de Havilland, Claude Rain. So these were people who were attached to specific studios, in this case, Warner Bros. And it was really interesting, even as a child, how I would recognize these actors in these three films. And that kind of got me into this 
idea of what filmmaking was, even though obviously filmmaking has changed a lot since the studio model. I think if you had grown up as a child knowing a lot about the old studio system of classic Hollywood, you would have been insufferable. Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah, I, I would have never wanted to talk to you. I really wanted you to watch these, not just because they are childhood favorites. And I honestly, my parents watched this with us. These are not children's movies, right? Like these were movies that were made for adults, although I'm sure a lot of children watched them when they first came out. But they are clearly the forerunner of what we would know as modern action films. And so for me, it was really cool not only to watch these with you and re-experience them with you, but to also re-experience them with the film knowledge I have now, with the ability to make connections between these films and action films. And I know action films are not your favorite, but I love them. Yes, they are not. Plus, I love Errol Flynn. I mean, I don't know who doesn't love Errol Flynn. I'm going to say that, and then like our Discord channel for Monkey is going to like light up with all the like awful things he did, probably. He killed somebody's <laughs> parent. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. So let's start with the first one. Again, this is, a, this is a loose trilogy, and I'm only calling it a trilogy because of the production. But let's start with the first one that we watched, Captain Blood. It was also the first one made in 1935. It's a rather lurid title, based on a 1922 novel by Raphael Sabatini. And I've actually read the novel. It is a pretty good adaptation of the novel. You are a huge nerd. I know. Like I went through a phase at one point when I was like a preteen where I was like reading a lot of like the ones that were written for boys in the like early 20th century. Anyway, it's a whole thing. But (laughs) I had a weird childhood. Okay, this film stars Errol Flynn, Basil Rathbone and Olivia de Havilland. This was the first film that Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland had starred together in. And they went on to star in lots of films together because their chemistry is pretty legendary in Hollywood. This was also the film that put both of them on the map. Both of them were relatively unknown at the time, and Warner Bros. took a huge risk putting these two actors that were not big box office draws in this particular role. And so this is really the film that got this whole, both of their careers really off of the ground. It is about the real events of the Monmouth rebellion which was against james the second and so the basic plot of the film is that during the monmouth rebellion a lot of englishmen who participated in the rebellion were captured tried for treason a lot of them were killed but some of them were sent off to be indentured servants or slaves peter blood who is an irish doctor i'm really trying to figure out the best way of like summarizing this peter blood who is an irish doctor played by errol flynn is a bystander who does the right thing by treating one of the rebels when he's like horribly wounded. And just because of that one action, he gets arrested and sent off to indentured servitude, even though he didn't participate in the rebellion itself. So the moral of the story is, if you try to do the right thing, you're going to get punished. Hi, it's co-host Sam here. For those of you who have seen Dances with Wolves, You know how Kevin Costner's character gets, like, horrified by war and then totally goes off and supports the other side? Yeah, that's what this is. Yeah, this is very much what this is. And basically... it's super problematic. Yes, it is problematic. And I do want to talk about that. But basically what happens is that he ends up arranging the escape of himself and fellow captives and 
they capture a ship and decide that since nobody likes them anyway and they're outcasts from society, they're going to become pirates. You know, it's a shame we don't live in a time where that happens to you, you just become a pirate. Although, there'd be a lot of pirates. There would be. And frankly, at I some point, is there like a critical mass where it's like nobody's a pirate because everybody's Everyone's a pirate? Everyone's a just, pirate. You're just a person again. I will say that there are not enough queer pirates in this film. Although Basil Rathbone does his damnedest. Or is he just French? I don't know. (laughs) Sam, going into these films, what did you expect? You know, I don't know. I did did try to go in with an open mind. I'd seen clips of Robin Hood. When you say swashbuckling, I know what it is. But, you know, like, what's going to take two hours? Here, what are we doing? What's the what's the point here? Are we just going to be faux fencing forever? Like, what's the deal here? So going into it without expectations was probably a good thing. All three of these movies, not just this one, but this one, it was the first one that we watched, has a story that is plotted out. It is not. I mean, a lot of action movies today are action set pieces with some plot to glue them together. This is not that. This is a story that is meant to be engaging on a plot level and then have action to to supplement it and to draw people in. It does a pretty good job of that. So specifically looking at Captain Blood, what were kind of your reactions to seeing... Errol Flynn's performance. Had you ever seen an Errol Flynn movie before? Not that I know of. Okay. What was your reaction to his performance and the setup of this particular plot? This one does a really good job of bringing you in by the idea of the injustice. Like, even if you don't know a lot about the history and the time period, he's clearly wrongly convicted, which is something that apparently happened very often. It's interesting. We see a lot of these kinds of movies and stories before there were movies at different times where, uh, you know, Mark Twain was one of the champions of this, was basically like, hey, this is injustice. It's bad. It's bad. You can see how it's bad. You like this guy, right? So it's bad that what's happening to him, you know, this happens to real people and it's bad. Ha ha, I tricked you. I don't know if that was the purpose here or not, but like, treating people as property, tone. I mean, like, you know, what does it matter, the the historical implications? All this history is over, especially in a American film context. Nobody cares about slavery other than the thing that happened in America, although right now people are trying to make you forget about it. So this idea of quote-unquote white slavery, which is a terrible way to describe what this is, it was real, it happened, it doesn't make anything else worse or better, but it just points out that these things happened, and this could possibly be another way of saying, of a more palatable way of saying, you shouldn't treat people as less than. Except for there are black slaves in the background of this film. And, and no, we can't talk about that. Yeah, that is that is my one critique of this film, is that while it is actually trying to talk about a historical thing that happened, it's still like, what if white people were treated like black people? How horrible would that right. be? One of, the, one of the hallmarks of American popular culture is trying to contort in the most interesting and unique ways possible 
to say something's bad in one context without saying it's bad in the obvious context that you don't want anything to be done about. Slavery's bad. Don't look at that. Don't look over there. That seems to be kind of what this film is doing. I mean, it's not, it does not directly comment on the enslavement of black people, but by prioritizing the enslavement of white people, it does create this division between the two. Well, and I mean, the thing that happens well through the middle of the 20th century, not to say that it never happens again, but I'm thinking about Song of the South particularly, is this idea in filmmaking that that slaves are happy, but not white slaves, because white people would never be slaves. So why would they be happy? Which is a real bad message, because this, it's wrong. This movie doesn't hit that as hard. Like it it's, it's not on the agenda to try to redeem but, black slavery, but there are happy black slaves in the background. Right. Well, it's never the agenda. Right. Because it, but it's a, it's a fiction that has to exist. Otherwise gone with the wind doesn't work. Right. Exactly. As an example. What did you think about the chemistry between Flynn and de Havilland? Tessa, is this enemies to lovers? This is enemies to lovers. Hey, I got it. Because technically she's the one who buys him from the slave block. And so there's a lot of like animosity between the two of them. And then she hates that he becomes a pirate. Yep. I mean, the Princess Bride is doing this. Right. This is the whole thing. Right. Between Dread Pirate Roberts and and Buttercup, right? That this is the whole thing. This is it. The whole thing that the Princess Bride does (laughs) is based on this dynamic. This particular between dynamic. these two people in all three of these movies. Well, uh, Olivia de Hamblin is only in two of them. In these three movies. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, she I has mean, such good chemistry with him. It's like she was in all three of them. It was like she was in all three it was of them. Like that. What did you think about the action in this film and like the piratey stuff? How he's like a good pirate. Eh. Eh. Yeah, eh. you don't really You're care not about make action. You're not care about that. I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. But it Captain Blood is definitely my least favorite of these three in terms of cinematography, which we'll talk about. But it was definitely a mainstay in my house. And actually, I think I learned about the Monmouth Rebellion from this. And I only learned later that it was actually like a real thing. If, you, if you're sitting there listening to this going, what's that? Yeah, you're normal. It's fine. (laughs) Well, and they talk about William and Mary at the end of it. So, you know. If you're listening and thinking, (laughs) I've heard of William and Mary, but that's the extent of it. Again, yes. Yeah, you had a regular childhood. Good for you. All right, let's go to the next one, which is probably a little bit more well-known by listeners. The Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938. This one is obviously based on the legend of Robin Hood. I don't feel like I need to really spell out for you can what I, that is. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Why did they... What? Like, this is a movie about foxes. Why did they change, oh, change God. them? Oh, God. I'm sorry, Andy's not here. Somebody has to ask the hard questions. <sighs> Why did they change them to humans? This is very different from the sexy fox version that Disney put out. Boy, Another staple from my it. childhood. Yeah, I'm sorry. Errol Flynn is very sexy, but he's not as sexy as Fox Robin Hood. <laughs> he is not as sexy as a cartoon fox, my friend. It is absolutely true. This film stars the three of the stars from Captain Blood again. So Flynn, Rathbone, and de Havilland. 
plus Claude Rains, who plays King John. Rathbone plays Sir Guy of Gisborne. And de Havilland plays Maid Marian. This was the first use of three-strip Technicolor for Warner Bros. It was the first time that they had made a movie with this particular color technique. It was also the most expensive film they had made up to that point. I want to talk to you a lot about the color, but I do want to mention, too, that this film is critically acclaimed. It currently has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It is in the Library of Congress. People really like this movie, especially because of the technique used for the coloring. I have a ranked out list for you. Oh, God. All right. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Warner Brothers, The Adventures of Robin Hood, David O. Selznick, Gone with the Wind, MGM, The Wizard of Oz. Rank that list. Oh, God. Why would you make me rank that list? I mean, it's all about the use of color, right? Yeah. Honestly, oh, I'm going to make people mad with this. Honestly, I'm going to go the adventure from from top to bottom. The Adventures of Robin Hood is number one. Wizard of Oz is number two. And Gone with the Wind is number three. Why is that controversial at all? Well, I'm just talking use of color. Like, I feel like some people are going to be like, why would you rank this film above Gone with the Wind? Well, I mean, the thing that's interesting about Gone with the Wind is not that it's in color. And... You know, really, the thing about The Wizard of Oz is like, look, we went from black and white to color to symbolize something. The Adventures of Robin Hood is is actually using, it's not using color as a gimmick. And, you know, it's got Gone with the Wind beat, right? Yeah. No, it's not my favorite of those three. But I am interested in your opinion on the use of color because it's got this, like, almost oversaturated right. look to it. Well, well, that's the thing. I mean, Hollywood does this all the time, right? Like, when we can have sound, we're going to make a big freaking deal about it while at the same time not being very good at it. So this is kind of that. Like, we're going to make a big deal about how this is, like, in color, and we're going to make it in so much. It reminds me of Pimp That Ride. Like, I heard you like speakers, so we put speakers in your speakers. Like, they put color <laughs> in your color, man. I like it though like to me it, it feels like well it feels like a cartoon well yeah but but I think it works for the subject matter because Robin Hood is such a like mythological story that it is so larger than life that the right. color seems like it matches so that I, particular energy so I saw and I'm 50 50 this is angels with dirty faces which is another curtis by the way I once saw, I mean, it might have been the Roaring Twenties. It was one of the two. I think it was the Roaring Twenties. But I saw a colorized version of it. And, you know, growing up during that, I missed, I'm aware of Ted Turner putting everything in color and how it was a travesty, but I missed it. I missed it until the VHS that I could get a hold of, of whichever movie it was, had only the colorized version. I did eventually turn the color all the way down on my TV, so it was kind of back the way it should be. But it was wrong. It was wrong. It was wrong, not whether they did a good or a bad job of it, but it was wrong to see a gangster movie from the 30s in color. That was wrong. This was not wrong. It seems right that this movie was in color. I mean, and I also feel like because Robin Hood is 
identifiable by color, right? Like he's the man in green and there's a lot of Sherwood Forest and he's accompanied by Will Scarlet, you know, like there's a lot of. What you're trying to say is that Robin Hood and his merry men are known for being fierce and you can't do fierce <laughs> in black and white. Absolutely true. I mean, they are men in tights. Manly men. Manly men. Tight tights. What did you think about the story and the way that these different legends are sort of stitched together? I have never seen Robin Hood before, so I, I knew know. nothing about what was going to happen. They followed the plot. They did a good job. I was interested. Still still on the Olivia de Havilland, Errol Flynn train? Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know that I like Errol Flynn better than Kevin Costner. I mean, obviously he's better than Kevin Costner. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's funny. They're thinking about Robin Hood as... You know, I, I've kind of buried the lead on the fact that I've managed to check off another AFI movie that I hadn't seen before. But there are a few AFI movies that I have reacted to with cool. Ironically, another one that I saw where I felt that way was Yankee Doodle Dandy, which was also a Michael Curtiz movie. I mean, Michael Curtiz has made a lot of films. I, I know him like most the- for Casablanca, but, you know, like... I just like how on the original list, he's at number two and number 100. Good for yeah. you. <laughs> Good for you. Didn't you tell me, you told me that the star of Angels with Dirty Faces and Yankee Doodle Dandy was up for consideration for one of these movies. Is that right? James Cagney? Yeah. Yes. He originally was supposed to be Robin Hood, which seems very oh, wrong. You stole our money, you dirty rat. <laughs> It seems very wrong that he would play Robin Hood. He does a good gangster, and you could argue that Robin Hood is gangster-like. Not the same vibe. Uh, The point is that, I mean, this goes back to the discussion we had about Westerns, right? I mean, this is not a genre that does anything for me. Do I recognize a good version of it when I see it? Yes. Right? I mean, that's, that's the thing that comes down to at the end. This is well done. It's interesting that Cartes is able to put out so much you know, so many films per year, and they are regularly at a quality like this, where, you know, three of his movies are at the top of these lists. But, you know, you take a movie like Captain Blood or Seahawk, they're also good. What did you think about Claude Rains? I know you like him. And of course, he's a, a big deal in Casablanca. The funny thing about him is that I don't, Always, for somebody I like so much, I don't always recognize him. And I think that's just a testament to how good he is in those kind of supporting roles. But he has such a distinctive voice. I understand. Anyway, I particularly remember loving the back and forth between Robin and Maid Marian in this. Like, I think it's better than the back and forth that they have in Captain Blood. I think that it makes more sense for these characters to have this kind of like electric chemistry that could like they either hate or they love each other i love the part where he's like i guess i'll just like throw myself off the castle (laughs) i yeah i mean like this is this is clearly i i get it i see how i i was able to successfully name the romance trope so i mean i see how this works all right and then the final film in the trilogy and my personal favorite of the three is the seahawk which came out in 1940 this one so all the three of these films are about england which i think is very funny that i knew more about english history than i did about american history at this point in my childhood because of these movies 
But this is about Elizabethan England this time. And we actually do have Queen Elizabeth as a major character in this film. And I, I feel like she was the best part about this movie. Queen Elizabeth was played by Flora Robinson. I mean, she did she did a fine job. I think I think what we enjoyed so much about it was we definitely had some additional commentary and dialogue for and by Queen Elizabeth throughout this movie. We had a good time with her. She is definitely the HBIC in yes. this film. Like, and she does such a good job with the scenes that she's in. Like, even like though she's not the romantic lead, she has such chemistry with Errol Flynn as well that you can believe that he's like that rapscallion favorite who right. just goes off and does things and needs forgiveness later. But this movie was actually made to be pro-British propaganda during the be beginning of the war. Somebody had to. Yeah, so so this was definitely a propaganda film. And you can kind of see that in the way that they are characterizing Spain because this is supposed to be about uh, the time leading up to the attack of the Spanish Armada, um, which was a big deal in Elizabethan politics. The film is about a privateer, which if you don't know the difference between a pri pirate and a privateer, a privateer is a government-sanctioned pirate. <laughs> Rhett Butler yes. from Gone with the Wind yes. is a privateer. They would attack enemy ships and take, or e not even enemy ships, just like another government ships and take their treasure and it would go into the treasury of the government that they belong to. But it was very like, under the table like right. it was very much like they were government sanctioned but they weren't really we weren't going to explain how we got this money and, and you know fresh off of or relatively fresh off of probably made 17 movies between the two <laughs> fresh off of Casablanca we we know that Curtiz is pretty good at dealing with these underhanded oh no this isn't happening right situations yeah also with Claude Rains. Uh, also with Claude Rains. Yeah, Claude Rains is also in this movie. I, I will point out, too, that you tell me this is meant to be pro-British propaganda. I really like how we're going to make a movie about how Britain is really too weak to go up against its enemy. But gosh darn it, if they're not the little plucky island that could, don't you just want to help them? Like, that's how I want people trying to, like, advocate for me. Well, they can't do it on their own. They're so weak. <laughs> They're just going to get slaughtered by the bad guys well, who are nominally Catholic. Who are nominally Catholic. <laughs> and Claude Rains does not make a very convincing Spaniard. I just have to put that out there. He's good at a lot of things. I don't think he's a convincing Spanish person. However, I do think that knowing that it's British propaganda does affect the way you read the first part of this film because it's very much that Queen Elizabeth does not believe... And she's being influenced by someone who she doesn't know is a traitor. She does not believe that Spain will actually attack. And so there's a lot of like concessions and negotiations. And it feels very much a like a lot what, of Neville Chamberlain. Yeah, it feels very much like Neville, Neville Chamberlain type of commentary here. And so there, that is kind of the main tension in this film is that Errol Flynn's character, Jeffrey Thorpe, is this privateer. He is convinced that the Spanish are going to attack. He wants to bulk up England's treasury and their forces as much as possible. He's trying to convince Queen Elizabeth to act. So there's a lot of this type of back and forth going on. 
looking at that picture of you have a picture up of Errol Flynn yeah. right now, and I'm like, that's Clark Gable. Yeah, he does look without very a mustache. Clark Gable esque. Yeah, I mean, I think that these types of like action heroes were point. all kind of yeah. the same. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's the point. Although, although, Tessa, mm-hmm. I will say, there's a lot of action in this movie, but clearly the best part is that that court stuff where there are hijinks with the queen and with Errol Flynn's character and all that stuff, right? And so I look down here and I see that 13 years later, he makes White Christmas. Pranks, right? Yeah. It's And, and I think that's interesting because you can Curtis, kinda, you mean, not yeah, Errol Flynn. Curti- no, okay. Errol Flynn was in <laughs> White Christmas. Go watch it again, I promise. It's real. No, it 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 but you think about, you know, he's most known for for Elsa and Rick. This movie really gives off more of the the white Christmas vibes. And so it's interesting to me that 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 kind of doomed love affair is not something that he is most well known for. You know, it's not even that the gangster films don't really even feature that kind of plot line. Knowing that he made those two movies now, I'm like, yeah, I can see that, actually. It's it's kind of almost seems like Casablanca is kind of the outlier. Olivia de Havilland is not in this film. Instead, the main romantic lead is played by Brenda Marshall. Boo. I actually really like Brenda Marshall. I Boo. think she's pretty good at this. You didn't like her? I mean... She was fine. She was fine. Yeah. Although there is this really great scene. It's still the same like enemies to lovers because he attacks the ship that she's on and takes her captive basically, but he takes her to England because he's gallant like that. (laughs) But like there's this really great scene where she's like so like judgy for him being a pirate and she keeps like insulting him and being like you're a thief and a pirate and a liar and like all these things. And then he's just like, I wonder where you where you Spanish got all that gold from, huh? Like it it is a really interesting like political commentary on Spain's wealth that's sort of hidden here in the in the movie. I'm not saying this movie isn't any way interested in indigenous reclaiming of those materials, but it is a little bit of a a little bit of a punch there. How would you rank these three films? I don't know. I think this one was kind of the least interesting. Really? Because it's my favorite. Well, of course. After you've read all of Shakespeare's Queen Elizabeth related <laughs> things, it's like, well, I don't I this this is tapped. This yeah. is tapped. She's no Kate Blanchett, I gotta tell you. But you know, it's fine. Um you know, Robin Hood has has the reputation for good reason. It's probably the best version of whatever this is. And and I think that I think from a, a plot line level, I think Captain Blood may be the most interesting, if not the most problematic. Isn't it funny how interesting and problematic sometimes go hand in hand? Especially in the thirties. Yep. I did want to mention before we moved on that the cinematographer for both the Adventures of Robin Hood and the Seahawk was Saul Polito, who was nominated for three Academy Awards for Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex, Sergeant York, and Captain of the Clouds. So he was the same person who worked on those three films as well. I think that Sol Polito cinematography, he's really allowed to try some different things here in this particular film 
there's a lot of shadow work that I think is really interesting. You can kind of see it at the end of Robin Hood, but this film is very interested in telling you things through shadows. And so like there are fight scenes where you almost can't even see the people who are fighting. You can just see their shadows. Or there's a scene where they get back to the boat and something horrible has happened, but you don't see the horrible thing. You just see the shadow of it. Right. I mean, like this is the kind of cinematography that, of course, growing up, I was familiar with the joke about how it pans over to the shadow and then the shadows are fighting, like independent of, like that's a gag. I'm pretty sure Mel Brooks has done it. Other people have done it. This is that, right? This is where that joke comes from. Like, you know, I grew up and I saw the jokes about the things I had never seen and you grew up seeing the thing. There's also a really good set of scenes in the jungle in this film. I won't explain how they get to the jungle, but I was really fascinated by this sequence because you could feel, even in a black and white film, you could really feel like the oppressiveness and the claustrophobia. Like there's just some really good ways that the camera is used in this and inventive ways that I hadn't seen in the other two films. The real question, Sam, is would you actually wear a bustle? Oh, I thought you would ask me if I would have watched these as a child, and no, I wouldn't have. Would I wear a bustle? It really depends on the return on investment. There's a lot I, of bustles in this film. Right, and I think it's important to think about return on investment. Like okay. You have to know, like, what are you getting back for putting on that contraption? And, really wide and, hips? And pun intended. What did you think about the music of these three films, since they were all done by the same person? Right, it's I, that I've never been a fan of that kind of old Hollywood score. It just never works I remember in, there's a scene in Seahawk where there are people who are parted, lovers who are parted, and you were like, this is really schmaltzy. <laughs> well, well, I mean, the whole thing about these are, and I told you, it's like old Hollywood goes overboard on everything because they can. Scores have always been about telling you how you should feel. These are hitting you over the head with a mallet going, feel this way. But I love it. I just think it's so like, I mean, yeah, I can see. And I usually am not the kind of person that's like, oh, I love sentimental things. But I feel and maybe this is me just viewing it through nostalgia, which we were talking about. But like, I feel like the way they use this is to play up that romance. And I am a fan of the romance genre. And so like, I do see these as swashbuckling action films, but I see them equally as a sentimental romance in the in the sense of like the old British way of talking about it. This is one of those instances where I will say, I didn't ever get to see The Princess Bride as a child if these three movies had never been made. That's true. I am going to watch The Princess Bride. Would you recommend them to anybody now? Like as an adult? Why not? Like who would you recommend these to? Anybody who's interested in film. I mean, this is like a, you could use... And I'm sure people have. You could use Adventures of Robin Hood in a film course. There's a reason it's on the list, people. I have to say that the one thing that I haven't mentioned so far is that as a child, I was definitely in love with both Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland. Uh So I know that you're more into Olivia de Havilland (laughs) than Errol Flynn. It's important. Don't do by erasure. Okay, before we get to the last film... The other talking point I have is how to introduce someone to your childhood favorite. I think this is important, not only because that's what we did over the past couple of weeks in showing each other these films, 
But I also think that because of the nostalgia effect, but also because of the way that films are so built up in our minds, that it's actually really difficult to introduce somebody that you that hasn't seen a childhood favorite to a childhood favorite. What are some of the difficulties that you've experienced in the past? Or what are some of the things that you were worried about when I was watching these? Uh, first of all, by the way, I'll just say, because somebody's been screaming it the whole time, The Adventures of Robin Hood is not on the original AFL list. It is on one of their other ones, I'm pretty sure. You could always go the annoy somebody about it for years until they finally give in and watch it route. This seems to have good success for both of us. Yeah, but that's because we love each other. <laughs> uh, so, What, what if it's should... like more of a friend so that you're introducing it to? Step one, have somebody fall in love with you. Step two, <laughs> annoy them into watching this for years. Foolproof strategy. It works, people. What are some of the issues that you think people run into when they show childhood films to another person? You mean the thing where they look at them the whole time going, eh? Huh? This is my favorite part. No, no, hold on. This is my favorite part. And then they say the line at the same time. Oh my God, I hate that so much. Neither one of us did that. <laughs> I think we were actually pretty good at not letting ourselves do that while we were watching these films. I, I mean... Restrain yourself. I did not restrain myself well during The Wizard. Um, you're being nice. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like I think that you have to... It's almost better sometimes to just let them watch it on their own. Like as much as you want to experience it with them. Yeah. I do like watching people's childhood favorites with them. Oh, yeah? Like I really enjoyed when I watched Muppets Take Manhattan. I watched that with Elise, our friend. And I really enjoyed that. Right. But I also wasn't in the same room with her. That's true. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to think of something positive to say. I don't have anything positive because I have bad experiences with this. And so the older I get, the more I don't talk about these things with other people. Because as, as much as you would like to convert people into the things that are good from your childhood... It doesn't ever really seem to go well, which is why I'm saying that convincing somebody to fall in love with you really is a foolproof plan because it really <laughs> is an exception to the rule because if they're in love with you, they have to at least be nice about it. I didn't really care for the Errol Flynn movies, but I've said several nice things about them today because they're true, but also because I know it really matters to you. Well, you don't have to do that. That feels like you're threatening the integrity of the podcast. <laughs> well, I think I've made it pretty clear. They're fine. But I, you can't yeah. replicate nostalgia, though. No, you can't. What you can do is bond over a shared experience. You know, like, oh, that was one of my favorite movies, too. And you can enjoy them together. But, you know, it really takes somebody being interested in the idea. You can't force them to watch something that is your favorite movie um, or force somebody to listen to you talk about your favorite movie or not just movies, you know, music or whatever, because you're going to, you know, a lot of times you'll be disappointed. And, and so I think that it, that's why it's really hard to talk about childhood favorites because you have that connection with it. It's like, Oh, one of my favorite movies ever is this movie that I saw five years ago. Well, if you don't like it, my feelings are going to be hurt a lot less right. Than if you had hated the wizard. 
That's true. I mean, I guess that's the one thing we didn't talk about is that nostalgia also, there's a lot of feelings involved right. in nostalgia. Like you do yeah. invest a lot in these memories and these particular experiences and it does hurt your feelings when yes. people don't like them. Right. Which is, which is, and, and this is something that I can't remember who, a couple of people told me this when I first started teaching. They were like, don't teach something you love. Absolutely. They will ruin it. Those little ungrateful children will ruin it for you. So let us get to the final film that we're going to talk about, which was the other film that you had me watch. You know, for a short episode, we've been talking for a while. The Wizard. It turns out that we actually have a lot to talk about when it's just the two of us. The Wizard. The Nintendo movie with Jenny Lewis. Again, had no idea what this movie was about going into it, except for I did know Jenny Lewis was in it. Right. So... Okay. Hi, it's me again, your co-host Sam. I know that the star of this movie has been in the news this week. I'm sorry, this is the 20th thing I've talked about on this podcast where that's happened. If people would stop behaving badly, it wouldn't happen. It's not my fault. That said, The Wizard is a movie about a kid played by Fred Savage who has a younger brother who has... Some combination of post-traumatic stress disorder and maybe it's autism. Maybe it's Maybelline. I don't know. They do a really something job of blurring the lines there. But a child with some sort of developmental issue who's consistently running away from his broken home for California for some reason. And so... He and his brother, Fred Savage, run away. They meet a young Jenny Lewis on their way to California to a Nintendo tournament at Universal Studios Hollywood. That's a movie. This is really fun. It's like the classic <laughs> kids run away and have to like survive on their own story. Brought to you by Nintendo. Which, <laughs> which is great. Like, um, What's the name of the book where they run away and hide in a museum for like three months? I don't know. Oh, uh, it's going to bother me till I remember. Listeners, if you remember this book... All Please when, let me know. When you said that, I'm like, you mean the one where Natalie Portman has the baby in Walmart? No, no, not, no. This is a children's book. Not where the heart is. I know that one. I saw it. It was good because it had Natalie Portman in it. Not because it was good. So this was actually a really fun version of that. I was a little disappointed that Jenny Lewis didn't sing. Not gonna lie. I mean, she was a child actor, dude. She wasn't a singer. I understand. But that's been my main contact with Jenny Lewis. So, right. you know. And going back to what I said earlier about The Flight of the Navigator, this was another movie that had like a really cool opening credit sequence because it's just the, the the image of him walking down the road, right? With his little his little lunchbox that you don't yeah. know what's in it. And he's just he's he's just going to California, right? And like right. it's just this image of him walking down this this Utah road and he and it's just the opening credits and it's just it's a really, really good like opening for this particular film. I think I liked this more than the flight of the navigator because I think the characters are more invested. There's more to it, right? Right. There's did, more to this. I did not know this. I found this out yesterday. Tessa, this movie was originally two and a half hours long. Really? Yes. And would you believe that our friends at shout factory have given us this super long cut of the movie. I did not know that. I don't know that you can actually watch the whole two and a half hour cut, but they've restored 
all of the extra stuff. One of the things about this movie that we talked about is, is how it takes a while to piece through. There's, there's a father, there's a mother, there's a dead mother, there's a stepfather, there's four children, one of them's dead. They're all related to each other somehow, but it takes a little bit to pick it apart and figure out what it is, right? And the older brother is played by Christian Slater. Who is an alcoholic, mentioned in passing. Right. Would you believe that the entire 40 minutes that were cut almost all deal with that? I mean, I believe it. I really do. Because this is like such a huge family drama that I could see that someone would think that it needs to have more explanation of what's going on. Although, actually, I kind of like that there isn't in the theatrical cut. Like, I feel like part of the charm of this movie is figuring out slowly what happened to this family. Uh, I will point out that the other missing footage is apparently about Spanky the trucker. (laughs) And um, who's a really fun character you see for like two minutes. And more Nintendo footage at the end. Yeah, that's the one thing that I didn't... So I didn't grow up with Nintendo. (laughs) I just didn't. I didn't grow up with video games. I only got into video games in my... I'm sorry. I only got into video games in my early 20s. So that is something that I just don't have any nostalgia for. I I imagine that if you grew up playing these video games, that you would like get a huge hit of nostalgia from watching Jimmy play all of these Nintendo games, mostly in arcades, which is, again, a space that I was not... I didn't grow up in arcades. Yeah. But a lot of people did. So that was something that I couldn't really replicate. You can't really replicate that in somebody else's childhood. No, you can't. But it was cool having your commentary, though, about like the different <laughs> games. Because that, that did make it interesting since I would have no idea what was going on if I didn't have it. And you actually said they introduced a new Nintendo game. Right. I mean, this for those of you who are retro gamers. Well, if you're a retro gamer, you've probably seen this movie. For those of you who haven't. You know, the big thing about this movie to me was that I had to save up and buy my first Nintendo. And I did that. And I got the one with the with the zapper and the robot, as my mom and Dr. Zoidberg would say. But the thing about it is, is that, you know, these games were price pointed at $40. And when you're a kid in the late 80s, early 90s, well, really just the late 80s. $40 is a lot of money. And so the interesting thing about this movie is they really talk about all the different games that were available. And, you know, you really had to like have that game or know somebody who did or you weren't going to have much exposure to it unless you found an arcade system that was running some of these. Yeah, they they showed the Nintendo helpline, which was a big deal. That was like a it was like a nine hundred number. It was expensive. I never called it. Um, there's a power glove whipped out at one point in the movie, and that was a real thing. This movie, I will, I guess I'll spoil it. Debuts a brand new game, not just to the people in the movie, but the people watching the movie. It was Super Mario Three. I was reading about this film a little bit to prepare for this podcast. One of the things that consistently got negative reviews in this film was that a lot of people felt like it was a lot of Nintendo product placement, which it is. I mean, this film is heavily subsidized by Nintendo. Right. And and I feel like all the haters are Sega people, but 
you lost. Get over it. But I, I actually, and maybe this is the benefit of watching it not in its original time frame, is that I didn't notice. Like, it wasn't something that was like, I, I mean, I'm not going to go out and buy any of these games based on this movie, right? Because it's, what, 30 years later? <laughs> Hi, everybody. We have, we have a subscription. We have all the games. Don't worry. It's fine. Anyway, so you know what I'm saying? Like, I, to me, like, this didn't feel product placement, like, because I don't recognize most of the products. <laughs> but if you were maybe uh, an adult looking at this and you had a child bugging you about a game, maybe you would not right. like this film. But Tessa learns the subtext of history from swashbuckling films, does not notice Nintendo product yeah, placement. Yeah, again, in my childhood, ladies and gentlemen, and days. This is why nostalgia matters. So... I really liked the running away plot line. I really liked the characters of Jimmy and Corey. I thought that that worked pretty well. Haley, played by Jenny Lewis, I thought that was a really great dynamic. I liked the unfolding of this family trauma, that plot line. And actually, you know, I was really worried when this child who maybe has autism, they don't actually ever say autism in the film. It's just heavily implied that he has a developmental disorder. And I believe autism was like the main one that people knew about at the time. Right. They had no, they knew about it, especially because Rain Man had come out not too right. long before. So, I, and especially because I knew Rain Man hadn't come out too long before. And Rain Man is a movie full of problematic things about autistic people. This movie I was a little worried about. However... I actually think they do a pretty respectful job of having this character represent someone with a lot of PTSD over something that gets revealed in the film, but also probably has a developmental disorder. I don't know how accurate I would say it is, um, because I doubt they had someone who actually has a developmental disorder writing this or, or co-writing this. However, he's not presented as someone who needs to be saved. He's not presented as... He is really good at playing games, I should say. But it doesn't ever really come across as like a super crip stereotype. It comes off more as like he's just good at games. It's not. It doesn't really have to do with his developmental disorder. It's not like Rain Man where they're like trying to like exploit him. They want to take him to this competition because he wants to go to this competition, not because they think that they can just make a lot of money off of it, which they obviously also want the money. But like his brother, Corey, genuinely cares about him. This is more about his relationship with Jimmy than it is about the the video game. They run away before they even know about the video game contest. So that to me made it a lot more interesting than Rain Man, which is horrible because Jimmy is represented as a character who is loved by his family. They may not understand him, but they love him and he's worthy of being loved. And he makes a lot of his own decisions in this movie, even though he is for the most part, not verbal. And so that to me, I think worked really well. Now I'd really love to hear someone who actually has autism's take on this I could be wrong. There could be a lot of things wrong with this film. But to me, it was a lot less, it fit a lot less into the molds of stories about children with developmental disabilities than other things I've seen. Right. And I mean, this goes back to the nostalgia discussion from earlier because I was so excited to have you watch the Nintendo movie that has Jenny Lewis in it. As soon as the movie started, 
and we see the kid walking down the street. I was like, oh, yeah, Tessa, this is about a kid with autism. Did I mention that? Whoops. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I liked is that it it wasn't like these people cared about him. It wasn't like they had to learn their humanity through taking care of this difficult child. It was no like this is he's my brother and I love him and I want to take care of him. I don't want him. The main conflict is that his stepfather wants to put him in a home. Right. And so that's why they run away. Uh, it it's really funny because there's some '80s tropes in this movie. One of which is the 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 bungling father who is often a single father. Here it is played aptly by Bo Bridges, who there is a sapling tree in the bed of their truck for the entire movie, and it's just great. And I thought Bo Bridges and Christian Slater, who spend right. the most screen time together in this film together, that was really cool because it was also about this older son trying to navigate becoming an adult with a father who isn't very good at parenting yeah. <laughs> through, through no fault of his own. I mean, he's trying, but like they, they don't understand each other and they fight a lot at the beginning, but then they kind of come to understand each other through searching for their missing half of the family. So there's this movie that came out earlier in the eighties and I was watching this. I was watching the wizard saying, this really reminds me of a nut. This is like a recycled version of another movie about a kid who runs away with his estranged bumbling father who is chased down by, I believe a private investigator hired by the stepfather and they are on their way to a national gaming championship. And if you're thinking this is the Sylvester Stallone movie over the top, (laughs) <laughs> That's exactly what I'm thinking of. I'm like, oh my God, it's the same movie. Just without the Kenny Loggins song. I will say the other conflict comes from a cartoonishly evil <laughs> bounty hunter who has been hired by the stepfather. He touched my breast. <laughs> yeah, Jenny Lewis's character at one point screams, he touched my breast in order to get away from him. It is very funny, but he, I will say that that is a little bit much (laughs) in the situations that they get into. Like, I don't understand how this is like on the level of the FBI chasing children with guns. Like, how in the world has he not been imprisoned for some of his tactics in tracking down children? Like, (laughs) it's a lot. Oh, man, but there's some good, like, cartoonish, mm-hmm. like, car pranks. Do you want to know something really cool? What do I want to know? This was Tobey Maguire's first uncredited role. Whoa. Yeah, he's one of the goons in the arcade. No way. Yeah. I told Tessa when we were watching this movie that there are a lot of things that really appeal to me about this movie. There are two. One is Jenny Lewis. This is the first time I ever saw her. And because I had the giant mega crush of crushes on Anne of Green Gables, there was a plucky redheaded girl. And her fashion is on point. Yes, it is. On point. Years later, when I learned that the girl from The Wizard and the guy from Salute Your Shorts were in a band together, that was the end of that. And and so, but this was the beginning of of the Jenny Lewis saga for me. But the other thing I told you while we were watching the movie that that my thing when we were kids 
was I was the one who was better at video games than everyone else. And much like our pal Jimmy in the movie, I was bullied for that. So that was that was something that I had real experience with. To me, much like Flight of the Navigator, there's a theme here. This is about wish fulfillment. Right, yeah. This is about meeting the girl. This is about running away to California. This is for winning winning at doing the thing that I was really good at that other people made fun of me for. This movie was made for me. And as people know, I really appreciate it when people make pop culture just for me. Just for you. This thinking may, about you. Yeah, this may be the first example of that. So did you like it? I did. I actually really did. Again, like you said, it's not without its problematic moments yeah. as most 80s films are. Yes. The would 80s still, are nothing if not problematic. <laughs> I would still say that this is worth a watch, um, especially if you're interested in Jenny Lewis and in family dramas and in exploring like trauma, or if you're just a huge fan of Nintendo and you want to see all the ways that they feature Nintendo in this film. I mean, but honestly, you've already seen the movie if that's true. That's Come probably true. All right. We apparently, <laughs> when it's just the two of us, can talk forever. So this will be fun to edit later. Nah. Tess is editing this one. You know why? <laughs> because it's my turn next week. Yep. So next week, our friend Lozzie is going to join us for a James Vanderbeek-themed episode. That's right. We're doing Varsity Blues, Dawson's Creek, and Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23. That's right. We are really making each other enjoy some pop culture this summer and then talking about it on the podcast. So... You're welcome. This is what happens when Andy leaves. <laughs> You're welcome. Where can people find you, Sam? Online, I should say. Not in, you know. Playing Nintendo. <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all 41 of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Monkey Backlog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.